When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Los Angeles, March 27, 1991. A man is driving along slowly, glancing at alleyways and garages and storefronts, looking for something to burn. He's not someone most people will remember seeing. Average build, average face. He walks into a fabric store, DNM yardage, with a palm-sized incendiary device wrapped in a piece of paper. At the back of the store, he finds what he's looking for, a display of drapes backed with polyfoam. He tucks his device into the drapes and walks out the door. You could just see this cloud of smoke just coming over our heads. I'm screaming to the other girl, there's a fire. Evelyn Diaz was working at DNM Yardage at the time. So I run around, I'm going towards the back to get the fire extinguisher, and I get it, I really don't know how to use it. Try to put this fire out, figuring it's going to go out fast because it's so small, and it just kept burning and burning and burning. The more I'd put the extinguisher on it, the bigger it would get. Within minutes, DNM yardage is an inferno. It burns to the ground. But before the drapes even caught fire, the man who set it had already moved on. Down the block, four other stores are on fire. Fire companies scramble to contain them. And the arsonist disappears like smoke. I was a young, very energetic, enthusiastic case agent when this case kicked off. This is April Carroll. At the time, she was a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF. A few days after that string of arsons hit five stores across L.A., April was assigned to investigate. We had a series of fires and businesses open in broad daylight, and we just were dumbfounded that someone could go in during business hours and set a fire when people were inside. We would have indicators of a delayed device, and we would have nobody that saw a person start a fire, what we call hand start. We really felt that this was tied to one suspect. And April noticed something about where all these fires had started. 
It was consistently in pillows that would have that foam stuffing inside of it. Pillows that were filled with polyfoam. We'd call them the pillow pyro. The pillow pyro seemed experienced, someone who had been setting fires for a while. So April expanded the investigation beyond L.A., pulling in fire reports from all over the state. You know, expecting to maybe get one or two related to our fires in Southern California. We had a list of 26 crime scenes that we thought were tied to our suspect. We were briefing headquarters directly. Hey, this could be a statewide arson investigation. April and her team went through reams of fire reports, finding the Pillow Pyro's M.O. in fires dating back to the early 80s. And that's when she came across a fire that happened in South Pasadena, a fire that killed four people, including a grandmother and her grandson, a fire at Oli's home center. Similar things could have occurred in all of those structure fires. That was always in our heads that something he would do would cause this kind of consequence. It was the worst fear. It was the worst nightmare. This was the deadly fire. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. A devastating rash of fires fueled by arsonists. Two of them one day after another. I don't believe in coincidences. Somebody that would set a device like that would be a fire investigator. I saw flames across our driveway. We didn't know where we were going to go. We just knew we had to run. It's an ideal situation for an arsonist to set a fire and have it done successfully. She told me I could see a man, but she could never see his face. Who started it? Why would you do something like this? Why would you do this to all these people? Chapter 5, The Pillow Pyro. Southern California was being beat to death with fires. One day they had a fire at one end of a block, at the other end of the block, and then halfway down the street on the other side of the street. This is Scotty Baker. In episode three, Scotty looked into a series of fires around an arson investigators conference in Fresno. Four years later, he heard that Los Angeles was having an arson series of their own. They were being just brutalized and... The Fire Investigative Regional Strike Team, they're going to hold a task force meeting about what their problem is. The Fire Investigative Regional Strike Team, or FIRST, was a monthly meeting of all the fire investigators in the L.A. area. And sometimes, Scotty would drop in. Basically, hi, we're from the State Fire Marshal's office. All you guys know who we are. Where's the donuts and coffee at? And at that meeting an investigator from the L.A. Fire Department named Tom Campazano described the Pillow Pyro fires. And the hair on the back of my neck just stood up. I couldn't believe what I was hearing him say. Scotty had always suspected that the Fresno fires had been started by one of the investigators who attended the conference. Now, surrounded by some of those investigators, he had to be careful. After the meeting ended, he approached Campazano. I go, hey, uh, I want to talk to you in the back of the classroom. Yeah, okay. I get to the back of the classroom. I says, outside. 
He says, okay. I said, in the middle of the parking lot. He says, no, man. I said, no, in the middle of the parking lot. So we're standing out in the middle of the parking lot. And I said, cigarette, matches, paper, arranged in this configuration. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's our device. And I goes, no, it's not. That's our device. That's what burned us up north. The device used in the L.A. fires was the same one used in the fires around the Fresno Arson Investigators Conference. I said, we have something you don't have. We have a fingerprint. And I think Campy could have hugged me at that point. I said, get a hold of Marvin Casey, Bakersfield Fire. Word of the fingerprint quickly reached April Carroll at the ATF. And she got a hold of Bakersfield arson investigator Marvin Casey. One day I was in the office and I received a call. In episode three, Casey found a cigarette match device in a floral bin at a craft store. That device had a fingerprint on it, and the ATF wanted it. They were working the case down there. I think they called it the pillow pyro, whatever. They came up, they looked at the evidence, then I gave them photocopies of the fingerprint, and uh, they went on their merry way. Like Scotty Baker, Casey suspected that the fingerprint belonged to an arson investigator who attended the Fresno conference. But the original fingerprint specialist wasn't able to match the print to any of the conference attendees. Now, April took it to a different specialist who used a more sophisticated process and a bigger print database. And we said, we need you to be discreet, um, you know, and get right back to just us about whatever you might find here. I think it was within 24 hours we got a call back and he said, I have some information for you and I think you should come over here. Are you free? And I dropped everything and went right back over to the office. And we sat down and he said, I have a hit on your fingerprint. And we said, oh, great. Well, you know, cut the suspense. Who is it? And he said, well, it's someone you may know. I walked out the front door and sat down on the curb. Kind of just in complete shock. How can this be? There has to be an explanation for it. That's the first thing. He's in the chain of custody or there's a reason for this. April needed to know if her suspect had been anywhere near the crime scene and could have touched the evidence in his capacity as an investigator. The only way to eliminate that as a possibility was to go and meet with Captain Casey of the Bakersfield Fire Department again. They came back up. The first thing they did was they told me there's a gag order and I'm not allowed to talk about the evidence or talk about anything about the case. And boy, a red flag went up. He sensed that something was up and we weren't sharing. And I says, hey, what do you got? I know you guys got a suspect. You wouldn't be back up here wanting that evidence and you wouldn't be so excited about it. And they said, well, we, we really can't tell you. So I said, well, this case is near and dear to my heart. And I think I'm entitled to know. Captain Casey was extremely thorough. He had done the most digging. If this fingerprint had been in the system, then the case would have been resolved five years earlier. And I said, I'm not going to say a word. I won't even tell my wife about it. What are you kidding me? Anyway, they gave me the name, John Orr. I remember it got cold chills and 
know, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up a little bit. John Orr, a voice you've been hearing since the beginning of this series. My name is John Orr. I was a captain with the Glendale Fire Department. The John Orr who chased the Frito Bandito. We were having a series of fires in potato chip racks inside the stores. Then the coin tosser. The arsonist left a coin attached to some of his devices. So I just started working on the theory, well, maybe it's a fireman. A superhero of a fire investigator who could always find the point of origin. I found the source of many of my fires just based on experience. I know what I'm looking for. John Orr was a towering figure in the arson world. He was my instructor that got me fire investigation state certified. Everybody respected him and everybody admired him. But Marvin Casey remembered Orr had been at both of the conferences where fires had broken out. John Orr was number five on my list. Would have been the last one I'd pick off there. He just happened to be one of the 10. Wow. I, it was just, it, it just astonished me at the time. I then became kind of angry about it to think that this is one of our own. How could he possibly do that? But if he did it, let's get his butt off the street. Let's get him. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We were so driven as a unit, driven even more than any normal case to hold John accountable and have justice. Such a strong feeling of more than anyone, we're going to get this guy. ATF agent April Carroll had been tracking a serial arsonist who had set fires all across Southern California. Now she had a number one suspect. We knew that we had eliminated the possibility that John Orr's fingerprint was on that evidence for a good reason. And that left only a very bad reason. But the ATF would need more than just a fingerprint to make their case. They decided to set a trap. Catching him in the act is the best way to prove this case. And yet the weight, the pressure that we felt needing to catch him in the act before it got to the point that some of his fires got to was a lot of responsibility. We were pretty sure that when John would strike. It was on the way to a conference or on the way back. We looked at the list of classes in California that were similar to other seminars that he had attended. And there was one in San Luis Obispo. April and her colleagues decided to surveil Orr on his way to the conference. 
but that turned out to be easier said than done. Following another law enforcement trained <laughs> suspect was a unique experience as well and very challenging. He knew how it worked, and I think that's what caused him to drive like a bat out of hell. He did diversion tactics, you know, U-turns and two quick right turns and things like that. He'd go 90, 95, and if the rest of us are doing that as well, then we stand out too. I was one of the cars dropping way back, and I got pulled over. The cop said to me, will you stay here because I got to go get someone else who I think was driving even faster than you. I said, no, you don't have to go get that person. And he gave me this look like, what are you saying? You know, like here I am, just this regular looking woman driving this really fast, dumb car. And I got my badge out and explained and he was like, okay, cool. Yeah, all right, you're good. Once John got to San Luis Obispo, he went to a pharmacy of some sort. I can't remember what type, but like a Walgreens. We sent in an undercover surveillance on foot to watch John in the store. He was confirmed to be a non-smoker, and he purchased cigarettes. So we thought, you know, he's getting ready. He's getting his device components together. Game on. Given John's driving patterns, April knew they could lose him, so they decided to take the surveillance one step further. One of our techs put a bird dog, really old-fashioned tracking device on the bottom of his car. It was a jewelry box size, and it had an antenna that was supposed to be stuck up into the car so it wasn't visible. But one day, April and her colleagues watched in horror as John walked around his car, bent down, and looked underneath. And we're watching him do this, like, what is he looking at? And we're like, oh, crap. This is not good. We're burned. And he jumps in his car and drives like a maniac through the city streets of San Luis Obispo, pulls up right in front of the police station. And he gets out and he literally runs into the entrance of the police station. We're like, what is John doing? And we're talking over our radio. We're telling everybody, the surveillance team, stay back, stay out of sight. Within maybe two minutes, he's back in his car and speeding off. And so we let the rest of the surveillance team pick him up. And Ken and I run in. We find the lieutenant of dispatch. We're frantic. We're flashing our badges. And he came out and he's like, okay, okay, you know, I, I can tell you, he thinks he has an explosive device under his car and he wanted to go to our, our explosives range. We get on the phone with the officer at the range. I said, you are going to have a man show up in a matter of minutes with a device under his car that he thinks is an explosive device. Can you please play it off as a hoax? Say someone's messing with you, you know, this is nothing. And the guy played it off. He just said, look, this happens all the time with these training classes. We've seen it before. It's really dangerous. We tell them not to do it, but they still find a way to goof off with each other. The officer thought that John believed him. John didn't even take it back. He left it with the officer. You know, he messed with us. 
Did we suspect that he suspected he was being followed? Absolutely, 100% of the time. He never attempted to set fire. (laughs) He beat feet home that day, and we concluded the surveillance without incident. Just another day on the job. About a month goes by without any new developments. And then one day, April's phone rings. We'd been working with John Orr's boss at the Glendale Fire Department, the deputy chief. And deputy chief said, I have something I need to talk to you about. I have something I need to give you. But I can't meet you at the station, and I can't come to your office. He was being super careful. He did not get into any detail. He was sort of freaked out. He wanted this to be a clandestine meeting. And he said, I have an old detached fire station. I have the keys for it. It's just a small building. It's nondescript. We just thought, what the heck could he have? I mean, what is it that's so important that we're playing deep throat here? And he described this building and we found it. And we opened the door and he's sitting in there with a chair, just him and the chair and then a couple of chairs for us. And we just sit there and he starts telling us about it. He said, John just gave me a manuscript He plopped it on my desk and asked me if I would review it and edit it for him. And he's like, I don't know what to do with it. I'm scared that I even read it. I I, I hate to feel like this is describing John, but I can't help think but it is. The deputy chief handed them the manuscript, the rough draft of a novel. Points of Origin by John Leonard Orr. I remember sitting at my desk as the lights all went off around me and the building was going in, you know, lockdown for the night. And I'm still sitting with my lamp on my desk, flipping pages of this manuscript. It was the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. I've never had anything before that. I've never had anything like that since. I was reading my case in a novel written by my suspect. Aaron lifted up his binoculars and marveled at the flames. His position was good to watch the fire, but he wanted to be closer. It was his, and he needed to be near it. It was the most horribly amateurish, stupid novel I think I've ever read. But my heart was racing through the whole thing. I didn't put it down. Aaron was a loner and insecure getting little attention in his day-to-day life. His fires gave him the much-needed attention he craved, providing him with feelings of importance and recognition. Oh, that's why John did it kept coming to me. Oh, that's why John does it. Oh, that's what's important to John. He was, after all, the only one who knew how the fire started. And didn't that make him a very important person? The light that it was shedding was so unbelievable. Uh, First of all, how pathetic. It was pathetic to picture John the way Aaron sat in a car and watched. You know, (laughs) that, that was what gave John the most joy in his life. That was what was important, was the thrill. 
Aaron could see the flames and the heat waves emanating from the now sizable fire. He smiled to himself and clenched his hands into fists, cheering the fire on. And then April reached Chapter 6, in which the arsonist Aaron burns down a hardware store called Cal's, killing a grandmother and her grandson. Madeline held Matthew close to her and stopped briefly to look down the aisle where she saw the fire boiling out of the displays 50 feet away. She stared at the fire, not yet feeling the heat, fascinated, yet terrified. As she turned toward the annex door, the massive door slammed shut, cutting off her escape. My skin crawled to read that. To April, it looked a lot like the deadly fire at Oli's home center. We didn't have clear evidence in the hardware store fire, but in our minds, this was John. And here it is in his own words. He did it. He's guilty. This was not a novel. This was not fiction. This was evidence. I recall being in a car parked on the street of John's neighborhood where I could observe the driveway and his car parked in the driveway. And I remember the sun coming up, but it was cloudy and sort of dark, and that was the mood as well. It was really solemn. I think we all felt disgust mixed with the betrayal and the sadness that we were really at this point with a colleague. I remember seeing helicopters swarming over John's residence, and my stomach turned. That wasn't the plan as I had worked it out with headquarters. There was so much to it that we needed to not have this type of media jungle at the scene. Tactics were sound. They were as thorough as they would be for any other suspect, you know, hand on holster. We didn't expect him to resist, but you never know. We didn't expect him to be a fire setter either. Next week on Firebug. The guy just yelled, John, don't move, you're under arrest. And so my first thought was to analyze what's going on here and then go for my gun. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Neil Dinesha with help from Ryan Swikert, Michelle Lance, and W. Harry Fortuna. Ryan Swigert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld Neil Denatia, and Ryan Swigert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Voice acting by Levi Petrie. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Twitter 
at Firebug Podcast. If you've enjoyed Firebug, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.